sermon comes from Acts 1, 12 through 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field in the, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, uh, which is field of blood, for it's written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This past February, I was walking outside my house, outside our garage door, and I got out there, and my neighbor crossed the street, walked over to me, and handed me a bunch of uh, pandemic swag bags from the Super Bowl. That's somewhat of an oxymoron. But they were swag bags that they had, I guess, handed out to everyone who went to the Super Bowl uh, in Tampa. And so it had some really cool, like, Super, Super Bowl face masks and hand sanitizer. And uh, anyways, I, so I asked her, you know, did, did you go to the... Super Bowl, and she said, well, I actually work for a company who does security for uh, the Jag Stadium, but also for all the Super Bowls. So she said, every year, I go to wherever the Super Bowl is being held a month in advance, and we take an entire month to lay the foundation for security and safety at the Super Bowl. And so it was striking to me that it took her and this company an entire month, right, to lay this foundation of security for the main event, right, for what everyone was waiting for and was going to attend. The last half of Acts chapter 1 describes the 10 days between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And these 10 days are critical because they reveal the foundation from which the mission of God would launch in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit would come down and the church would just explode 
with growth. It's no different today. The mission continues. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and continues to work in miraculous ways. The church continues to grow as people put their faith in Jesus Christ. And the foundation hasn't changed. So what is it? What is the foundation of the mission of God? What is the foundation from which the mission of God launches into our world? First, it's a diverse community. It's a diverse community. It's striking when you look at this 10 days between Jesus' ascension and Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, what transpired, and what was true at that time. And two striking observations of how diverse this early community of Christ followers were and how diverse they would become. First, we see the diversity within Jesus' community of disciples. Verse 13 lists 11 of the disciples Judas Iscariot, the 12th, was the one who had betrayed Jesus and is not listed. But we see Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. This was an incredibly diverse group of people that were Jesus' disciples. Let me point out one example. You had Simon the Zealot and you had Matthew the tax collector. Zealots worked against the government. Tax collectors worked for the government. So you could say that Simon the Zealot was a right-wing small government guy who just wanted the government to stay out of people's business. Then you had Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was the left-wing, big government guy who made a career out of working for the government, collecting taxes. And both of these men were disciples of Jesus. They were friends. And the reason was because their loyalty to Jesus and their loyalty to his kingdom exceeded any loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether it be political or something else. Second observation on diversity of this community of Christ followers, and this gets at the diversity that would come and that will come as we explore the book of Acts. The disciples thought it right and good to find Judas's replacement. Now, you ask why? Why replace Judas? Why not just stick with 11? Just stick with 11 and move on. Why were they so fixated on making sure that they replaced Judas and get back to 12? Well, the answer is because Jesus originally chose the 12 with great intent, with great purpose and to communicate something very important. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples 
to communicate that he was reconstituting Israel, that the church is the new Israel, most importantly, that there is one family of God. One family of God that has diverse expressions. So this is important because as we go through the book of Acts, one of the biggest points of friction in the early church was the inclusion of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were non-Jews. They were very different ethnically, culturally. And the question that was being asked that was getting at this friction was, does a Gentile have to become a Jew culturally before becoming a Christian, a follower of Christ? And the answer in Acts 15 was an emphatic no. No, not at all. The church is one family of God with multiple and with different and diverse cultural expressions. Jew and Gentile were very different. Culturally, very, very different. Laman Sana, he was born in poverty in the Gambia, which is a country in Western Africa. He was born in poverty. He ended up becoming a very world-renowned Christian scholar. And he makes this incredible statement that captures the church as one family with diverse expressions. He says, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. So they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. After that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Here's the question. Do you have room for diverse cultural expression in your understanding of the mission of God and your understanding of the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot living in community together, though very different politically, and Jew and Gentile living together in community, though very differently, they're very different uh, culturally and ethnically, only happen because their loyalty to Jesus and his kingdom far exceeded any loyalty to an earthly agenda, whether it be political or ethnic or cultural. And this is picked up in verse 14 of Acts 1. It says, all these very different people with one accord, that means one mind, one focus, one highest loyalty, right? One accord. What does this mean? It means that we should feel at home with people who share our faith and not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics and not our faith. Or we should feel at home with people who share our faith but not our ethnicity 
even more than we do with people who share our ethnicity, but not our faith. Wherever the reign of Jesus is felt and experienced, believers move towards each other in unity, in peace. The mission of God is founded upon diverse community. But second, second, it's founded upon messy sovereignty. Now, let me explain that. When I say messy sovereignty, sovereignty being God having a divine plan that he works out that nothing can thwart. When I say messy sovereignty, I'm not saying God's sovereignty is dirty or unholy. What I'm saying is God's beautiful sovereignty unfolds in the midst of our messiness. And that that's foundational to the mission of God. The church is barely off the ground here in Acts chapter one. And we see this messiness in the church. There's a couple of observations of it. Number one, notice who is with the disciples in the upper room, gathered together. Verse 14, in the room of the disciples, you have together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, this is surprising because Jesus' brothers did not believe in him during his earthly ministry. They rejected him. They want nothing to do with him. John chapter seven, verse five, says, for not even his brothers believed in him. You talk about a mama's heart being wrenched. Mary gives birth to the savior of the world and his brothers reject him. Now, that's not family tension. That's not family dysfunction going on. But here we have it that Jesus' brothers are with Mary, Jesus' mother, worshiping Jesus. Which means that his brothers at some point during one of Jesus' resurrection appearances believe turned from rejecting him to believing he was the savior of the world. Right? So you have the messiness here of family dysfunction, of rebellion, rejection, but then the beauty of seeing this reconciliation and worship of Jesus. Then this second piece of evidence or observation on the messiness of the church is, this is the most obvious. And this is Judas's betrayal. When Judas betrayed Jesus. As Peter starts giving his speech here, Luke inserts in verses 18 and 19 the tragedy of the end of Judas's life. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, the field of blood. Judas was a traitor. He sold Jesus out. The gospels tell us he went up to the chief priests, the authorities, and said, hey, how much will you pay me if I deliver Jesus to you? How much will you pay me if I take you to Jesus? And they said, we'll pay you 30, 30 pieces of silver. So Judas took the 30 pieces of silver, silver, he bought a field. We learn here he fell, had a fatal rupture. 
And we oftentimes gloss over Judas's betrayal. But understand, to the 11 disciples, this would have been devastating. I mean, Judas was one that Jesus had chosen. He was one of them, and now he had defected. He had become a traitor. He had turned Jesus over so that Jesus gets nailed to the cross. I mean, the wheels were coming off. The disciples were absolutely shocked by this, surprised by this. It was messy. And yet, what we see here, and just to add another layer to the messiness, the man who is standing up and delivering the speech right now to the 120 that are gathered, Peter, he betrayed Jesus three times. Three times as Jesus was headed to the cross, Peter said, I don't know the man. Three times. When Jesus rose from the dead, he restored Peter. So what we see in this early church, even right in this very early scene, is a church that is messy, a church that has betrayal and defection and family dysfunction and rejection, but then belief. All this is going on, and yet what overshadows this mess is God's beautiful sovereignty. Look at verses 16 and 17. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. The scripture had to be fulfilled. In other words, Judas's betrayal was part of God's plan. We read on in verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 69, Psalm 109. And there's more. Jesus in John chapter 13, when he is announcing to his disciples that there is gonna be, one of them is gonna be a traitor. Jesus himself quotes from Psalm 41.9. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And then in John 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas's betrayal was a part of God's plan all along. It was a shock to the disciples. It was a surprise to the disciples. It was destabilizing to the disciples. And yet, it was so important for them to learn as they're about to launch this mission that undoubtedly would have more surprises, undoubtedly would have more defections, undoubtedly would have events and situations that would leave them hopeless and destabilized. They needed to know that God was sovereign and that he worked out and he was gonna work out his divine plan through the messiness, in and through the messiness. It's no different today. If there's one thing that's sure about your life, it's this, that things will not go as you would have planned them. Every person in this room 
would say to some degree. I never expected my life to turn out this way. I never would have planned this. And there are surprises that have derailed my plans. I mean, just in the past week or two at our church, taking your kid to the emergency room for emergency surgery, serious injury from an accident to a child, car getting stolen out of your driveway right in front of your house that you wake up to, a critical leadership meeting at your place of work or your business that had to get canceled because two people got COVID and now you're scratching your head going, how are we gonna move forward? Partnerships falling apart, leadership failure, moral failure, psychological failure amongst a, a leader that is so critical to the movement or the business or the whatever you're in. Or maybe getting fired or your world coming crashing down. There is one thing that we can be sure of, that our lives are messy and things happen that we never would have planned. And things take us by surprise and derail our plans. In a recent article in Christianity Today, Sandra McCracken writes about an experience when she was sitting on the front porch of an old farmhouse in Vermont. And she's sitting there and she's looking up on the corner of the house and there's a hummingbird feeder. And so hummingbirds would come and, and sip the nectar from the glass globe. And what she noticed though is that as the hummingbird hovered, it looked completely motionless. And yet hummingbird wings beat at approximately 50 or move at approximately 50 beats per second. What a beautiful metaphor of God's sovereignty. We look at a hummingbird that's sitting there motionless, hovering in the air. And the wings, which are invisible to us, are beating at, moving at 50 beats per second. And so it is with God's hand. God's hand so often is at work, though invisible to us. God appears in your moment of tragedy, in your moment of surprise, in your plan being derailed. You say, God, you are motionless. I can't see you at work. And yet the truth is that his sovereign hand is moving. His sovereign hand is doing something remarkable in your life, even though you can't see it. God's sovereignty works and is at work in the mess. And the disciples knew this. In the midst of the Judas betrayal, in the midst of all that was going on, they knew this. As they were searching for Judas' replacement, look what they pray in verse 24. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. They understood that God was sovereign. 
They understood God had already chosen Judas's replacement. They were asking God to reveal who his choice was. And they didn't sit passively and wait around. They took action, which means out of the 120, they picked two that met the criteria of apostle, and then they cast lots, which was a common practice in the Old Testament that was used to discern God's will. We see it in 1 Chronicles chapter 26. And most commonly, the way this worked is you would have stones. They would, they would mark stones. They'd put them in a jug. They'd shake the jug. And whichever stone fell out, that was whom God had chosen. And you say, well, why don't we start casting lots today and we make our decisions? What's going on here? Well, it's interesting to note that casting lots, we never see it after Pentecost. We never see it after the Holy Spirit has come down to fill his church. In fact, in Acts chapter six, when they choose the, the new deacons for this early church, they don't cast lots to figure out who the deacons are. We don't cast lots today. We, today, James chapter one, pray for wisdom. We ask for wisdom and then we make a decision. God's sovereignty, because God's sovereignty is at work through the messy situations we find ourselves in, we pray through the mess, and we pray for wisdom, and we make a decision, and we move on. What is the foundation of the mission of God? It's diverse community. It's messy sovereignty. And finally, it's apostolic witness. How did the disciples choose Judas's replacement? What was the criteria they used? Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So the criteria for Judas's replacement for apostle was that they were in close proximity to Jesus during his earthly ministry. And most importantly, they had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And so what we see here is the church was founded upon apostolic witness not apostolic succession. Now, there are traditions that believe in apostolic succession, which would say Peter was the first apostle, and then you trace the line through history and the apostles continue. The problem with that is the criteria for apostle is close proximity to Jesus in his earthly ministry and eyewitness of the resurrection. That says that the, the office of apostle came to an end with the disciples. And that's important. Because what we receive as apostolic witness is ultimately the word of God, the Bible, that you hold in your hand. The, the apostles were with Jesus. They had direct revelation from Jesus. Jesus taught them directly, and then they turned around and taught the early church, and their oral teachings eventually were written down into the Bible, the written word of God, which is, which is our authority. And so when you read the Bible, you're reading uh, the authority, the word of Jesus that was delivered to the apostles and is now 
been delivered to us through the word. And, and we know this to be true. Ephesians 20 says that the church, Ephesians 2.20 says the church of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, foundation of the apostles. As the new heavens and the new earth is described in Revelation, Revelation 21.14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That means that the apostolic foundation, meaning the apostles that heard the words from Jesus, delivered it to the church, has eternal significance. It's not updated. It's not changed. It's not renewed as we move through the centuries, right? Which is what apostolic succession would say, that there's kind of updates and there's renewals and there's changes to it. No, it was landed with the apostles and we have it in written form, and this is the foundation. And so when we say the mission of God is founded upon apostolic witness, it means that the mission of God is founded upon the word of God, which is Jesus, which is his word to us. Now, why is this so important? Why, why does this matter? Why is apostolic foundation so critical to the mission of God? Because there are and there have been pressures throughout the centuries. Every century has it. Every decade has it. There is pressure to renew, to update the word of God to make it relevant for the cultural moment of the day. In street language description, it would say this. The Bible is outdated. It's archaic. It's old. It's regressive. It's offensive. And it needs to be updated. You know, you, you may be, feel that way. You may be investigating Christianity. You may have deep questions about the Bible because it seems very offensive and archaic and outdated to what you're experiencing in our cultural moment. And so because of the particular culture we live in, there may be certain parts of the Bible that are problematic. But those parts of the Bible that are problematic to you are not problematic to people in different cultures. Let me give you an example of this. In individualistic Western societies like ours, we read the Bible culturally and we have a problem with what it says about sex. We're in an individualistic freedom culture and it seems very restrictive, it seems very outdated, right? But when we read parts of the Bible that talk about forgiving others, right? So forgive your enemy, forgive your brother 70 times seven, turn the other cheek. We say, that's wonderful, we love that. Now, if you go over to the Middle East in that culture, now the reason that we have those responses to sexuality and to forgiveness is because we're an individualistic culture that prizes individual freedom to do what we wanna do, not to be restricted, but we're also a culture of guilt. And that's why we love forgiveness. Now, you go over to the Middle East, and there's different response to the Word of God. In the Middle East, uh, they would read what the Bible says about sex and say, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. They would read what the Bible says about forgiveness and go, that is the, absolutely the most craziest thing I've ever heard. That is, that's offensive. Why? 
because they're not a guilt culture, they're a shame culture, and they're not an individualistic culture, they're a family culture, and so shame is such a big deal. And that's why forgiveness is so offensive to them. So here's the question. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everyone else's? If, if God's word, which was laid down by the apostles, if God's word is his revelation and not the product of any one culture, then it makes sense that it should offend every culture at some point. And so actually the evidence that God's word is his word is that it does offend. That if you read the Bible and you're offended by something, that's good evidence that it's God's word. That you actually are offended by something, right? The mission of God is not founded upon the cultural moment of the day because a decade from now, there will be a different cultural moment. A century from now, there will be a totally different cultural moment. Over history, they tend to recycle. The Bible, God's word, apostolic witness, it ultimately is Jesus' words to us, is the steady and the consistent that never changes. Never changes. And the mission of God is founded upon it. So a couple questions I'll leave you with. Do you embrace this foundation of the mission of God? Do you embrace diverse community? One family of God with very different cultural expression. Do you embrace messy sovereignty? Meaning, do you embrace God's beautiful sovereignty that is working in and through the mess of your life? and the lives around you? And do you embrace apostolic witness, that you embrace the word of God, that you embrace Jesus' words to you that never change and that are relevant for every moment that we will ever face in life? Let's pray. Father, your mission continues today. We see it just beginning to launch here in the book of Acts. Even thinking about Jesus' brothers who rejected him his whole life and after his resurrection and appearance, they believed. Father, there's so many here today that have believed, come to a place of belief, Jesus, because you're alive. Yes, you died on the cross, but you rose from the dead. Father, would you help us as a community to embrace the diversity within the body of Christ? That we would embrace and even celebrate differences while moving together in unity with the highest loyalty being to you, Jesus, and to your kingdom. And Father, there are so many here today that have been surprised by life, whose plans have been derailed. Pray, Father, that you would by your Holy Spirit, that you would help them to trust in your sovereignty, that they would run to the cross, that they would see love, that they would see grace, they would see, Father, that you haven't abandoned them, 
that you sent Jesus to rescue. And Father, would you make us a people that are standing firmly on your word, on this witness of the apostles that's been delivered to us. And that whatever comes in the cultural moments of the day, that we would stand firm on your word and that you give us wisdom to contextualize the gospel in those situations and be able to speak the truth of the word into those situations. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.